Hebrews chapter 5 this morning, um, we'll be uh, looking at these last four verses. Last week we just covered uh, that verse 11, but I want to read this for us as we get started. Verse 11, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll get right on into um, our, our study this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have in Christ to approach your throne of grace. Lord, let us not grow uh, weary in that. Lord, let us not be ungrateful um, for the fact that you have allowed us into into your throne room uh, through this means of prayer. Lord, we have no right to to, uh, uh, to claim um, in, in approaching you. God, it has been a, a privilege that has been granted to us. Father, I pray that you would be with us in this study this morning as we look at the uh, Lord the the admonition to grow up in the faith, to not be as babes, to not be as infants uh, that need milk, but Lord to be those of full age who require um, strong meat. Lord, those things that are uh, nourishing uh, for us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, be with us as we. Gather in this uh, in this way, Lord, uh, through this Facebook Live video. I pray, God, that you would be glorified um, through this message. And Lord, uh, it's been several weeks, few weeks, that we've been able to gather because of sickness and whatnot. Um, but Lord, help us to rejoice in our circumstances, uh, regardless of what they might be. Again, we ask that you would meet with us. You'd speak to us through your word. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I know there are some that are able to gather in our area this morning and um, some are not, don't have the privilege of being in town and, and having roads that can get cleared by uh, people that, uh, that that do that on this day. And uh, But nonetheless, I'm thankful that God has given us this means, uh, that we have this means to, to gather in this way, and even uh, those that can't listen at this moment can, can listen a little later on. Well, last week we, we started looking at this passage, and we saw the purpose for the author's uh, current practical admonition, and, and that's exactly what it is, is an, an admonition to practical Christian living, to growing up in the faith, if you will, or a, a command to grow up. Uh, uh, really. Um, and, and what he says in verse 11 is that they have many things to say. Now, he hearkens, what he's doing is hearkening back to what he had started to, to explain in regards to the high priest of Jesus and comparing that to an Old Testament figure that we saw in Genesis uh, called Melchizedek. Interesting enough that the author does not compare the high priest of Jesus with the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood, he compares it to, to Melchizedek. And we looked at some, some things regarding that. Um, 
and we'll look at some more when we get through this uh, through this this third warning passage. Um, w- one of the things just off the top of my head that we see with Melchizedek um, was it was like a, a unlike a priesthood unlike any other, right? Uh, he was ordained of God. He was called of God, but. For, for us Gentiles, I think what's important for us to look at, too, is that early on, we see the purpose of God um, in, in his kingdom and calling a people uh, to himself that involved, uh, that included the Gentiles. Um, so we can rejoice in, in that. Um, this, their, their inability, though, to be able to understand what... Uh, what the author is con- trying to convey to them was due not to uh, the, the teacher being impotent in, in being able to explain the, uh, the subject matter. It was due to their slothfulness and obedience, as we saw last week. That, that, um, that, that phrase there at the end, seeing that they were dull of hearing, gives the idea of uh, a laziness to obey the truth that they had heard. Immaturity in the faith is a direct cause of weak faith, um, and, and immaturity in the faith produces weak faith. Let me say it that way. Immaturity in the faith is displayed in times of adversity. You want to see where a a a, a Christian is in, in their walk of faith, in their sanctification process, and in, in their growth and maturity. However, you want to term that is to see how they respond in times of adversity, how they respond in times. Uh, of of uh, of tribulation and, and suffering, and, and I'd bring to you remembrance that these Hebrew Christians were facing just that at this time. They ha- had gone through a period of tranquility, and they were now faced again with persecution in, in the faith. Their slothfulness and obedience had not prepared them to understand those things that the author is saying are are hard to understand. Um, their inability to understand these things was not due, as I said a moment ago, to an incompetent teacher. And matter of fact, his competency is seen as he recognizes the inability of the audience to understand the great truth concerning Jesus as high priest. He recognizes that they're not able to understand, they're not able to gather or, or grasp these things. So he pauses to rebuke or admonish them um, to be doers of, of the word and if there's something that we get get out of all this is that obedience is our best teacher. Uh, obedience teaches us to trust God, right? It teaches us to rely upon him, to rely upon his word, to trust that his ways are best for us. It's not clear from our text, but it seems the audience of this letter may have taken the same approach um, and attitude that many Christians today have toward the scripture, And that attitude sounds something like this. The Bible is so hard to understand. There are really difficult parts that I don't believe God intended to reveal to us. Now, that's a lazy man's attitude. That's a lazy man's approach to the scripture to to just dismiss things as hard to understand or dismiss things as, well, maybe God didn't intend for us to understand all of the Bible. And I would vehemently disagree with that. I would say that because God has given us his word contained in the canon of scripture that we have in our possession, that he intended for us to be able to understand all of it. If God has given us the whole Bible, 
There's no part that he didn't intend for us to understand. He, even things that seem obscure, uh, he, even things that, that seem uh, a, a bit hazy or a gray area, we may call it. Now, our lack of understanding is due to laziness in reading and studying the Scripture. Now, if we're all going to be honest, well, we're going to say that, no, I don't read the Bible to the degree that I should be reading it. No, I don't study the Bible to the degree that I should be studying it. You notice in Proverbs 8, verse 17, he says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Now, what he's talking about here is wisdom. And, and, and Matthew Henry says, wisdom here is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We, we see that in Colossians. It is Christ in the word and Christ in the heart, not only Christ revealed to us but Christ revealed in us. It is the word of God, the whole compass of divine revelation. It is God the word in whom all divine revelation centers. It is the soul formed by the word. It is Christ formed in the soul. It is religion in the purity and power of it. Glorious things are here spoken of this excellent person, this excellent thing. And he goes on to say that, this wisdom will make all those happy, truly happy, that receive and embrace it. They shall be happy in the success of their inquiries after him. Those that seek me early, seek an acquaintance with me and an interest in me. Seek me early, that is, seek me earnestly. Seek me first before anything else. That begin be times in the days of their youth to seek me. They shall find what they seek, Christ shall be theirs and they shall be his. He never said, seek in vain. If wisdom is Christ revealed to us and Christ revealed in us, then why are so many displaying character traits not of mature Christians, but of immature Christians? Even more specifically about wisdom, wisdom is the ability to regulate one's relationship with God in a manner that pleases God. When one is wise unto God, he is prudent with others and knows how to regulate circumstances. James 1, 5 and 6 says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Our problem, though, is found in the first part of verse 6. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Our issue is that we don't seek God by faith, knowing he will grant this request. And that's the approach that we ought to have to the Scripture as we read and studying it, that we are seeking him by faith, knowing that he will reveal himself to us. He's given us, as Christians, we have one-third of the Trinity within us that he has given to us to, to convict us of sin, John 16, 8, to show us the need for the righteousness of Christ, to show us that judgment is coming. But Jesus says further about the Spirit that he will guide you into all truth. That's important for us as Christians as we seek to know the truth, seek to have our doctrine uh, uh, right and have it uh, according to the Scripture. This lack of faith is evident in our prayer life. This lack of, of asking God to, to grant the things that we need for our life. It's evident in our prayer life. We're more 
concerned with physical needs than we are with spiritual concerns. Uh, you look at any church that uh, our, our prayer requests are littered with physical needs on these uh, on these prayer requests. And, and I'm not saying that we should not pray for the physical well-being of others. That That's what we should be doing that. But in that praying for the physical well-being of others, we ought to see the spiritual concerns there as well. You see, for a Christian, when we have things come upon us, uh, we ought to ask the question, God, what are you teaching me? God, what, is there something in my life that is unconfessed? Is there unconfessed sin? Is there something in my life that you are trying to get my attention for? Is there something in the lives of others? God, is it someone who is an unbeliever that you're using this sickness to uh, bring someone in their life that can proclaim the gospel to them? You see, these physical needs that we pray for healing for, and, and look, I, I'm thankful that, that, we, that we recognize those things. Tiff and I, two weeks ago, uh, were tested positive for the COVID, and, and look, we had many of y'all praying for us, and, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but but that's, that's not what our, con, our only concern in praying for others should be, is that God would grow us. And that was one of the first things I, I, I said in my prayer. And, and for the first several days, I didn't feel like doing anything. I didn't want to read. I didn't want to listen to anything. I just want to lay in the bed or lay on the couch or the recon or whatever. And, and, and in those moments, my prayer was, God, what are you going to teach me at this point? What, what are you trying to show me? Is, uh, are, are there some things that I need to learn through this? And God's faithful to teach us those things. We should pray for the physical well-being of others, but we should more concern ourselves with the uh, spiritual well-being more so than the physical well-being. That shows a sign of maturity that we're, that we're growing in, in greater likeness to Christ. The, the slothfulness the, the, of this audience in obedience to God's commands did not advance them in the faith to the point that they could teach others, though. If you notice in, in verse 12, he says that at, there's a time that you ought to be teaching others and you're still having to be taught. I, I believe we could... Um, there are some commentators uh, that that don't know exactly what say that he don't know exactly what he's talking about, but I, I believe what he's talking about here is the basic fundamental uh, elements of the faith, and that's the gospel. These folks that had been saved for a long time had been Christians for uh, seemed like a, a a great period of time. Don't can't put years on it, but it, apparently it was to the point that they should have been teaching others. It leads me to ask, is it hard to imagine being a professing Christian and so Christian and so ignorant of the Christian faith that you can't explain the most basic of Christian teachings, and that is the gospel? Look, our churches are, are, are full of people that are like this, that, that they've, they've got in through the narrow gate and stopped right there. They didn't keep advancing in the faith. And so when they are asked to give an explanation of the hope that they say is within them that they can't even explain the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation uh, to someone else. The author does give us indication, I believe, to what he's actually saying. If you'll look down in chapter 6, if you're in your Bible, um, at verse 1 through 3, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... The principles being those foundational, fundamental things. 
let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. What is that? Could you, if someone asks you, hey, could you explain this to me? Do, do you have, uh, uh, do you have enough knowledge, and have you grown in obedience that you can explain that? And I can give you a a really condensed version of it. It's someone who's born again. It's that they, the Holy Spirit, God has taken their heart of stone. He's given them a heart of flesh. He's put his spirit within them and their eyes have been opened to the dead works that they were pursuing and they have repented of those dead works that would not uh, bring life to them and they have turned to God in faith. You see, salvation is not just praying a simple prayer or making a decision and, and then your life being changed. Salvation is a work of God that he does. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is so important we'll look at here in a moment. But going on further in verse 2 of chapter 6, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permit. I believe there are three key foundational doctrines that he's talking about here in, in, in chapter 6, 1 through 3 that we'll get into more detail next week. One is the salvation doctrine, making sure that we have that right, making sure that it is according to the scripture. Secondly, that we have our ecclesiology right. That is the doctrine of the church. Uh, he says the uh, the lay, the baptism. What, what is baptism? It, it's not necessary to salvation. Let me say that. I know there are some that teach that, but it's not necessary to salvation. However, it most likely is the first mark of one having been born again that they would want to publicly announce their faith by following Jesus and believers' baptism. The laying on of hands is seen in the ordination of pastors. Um, when I was ordained in 2007, there was a, a, a group of men that, that gathered around me and laid their hands on me and prayed for me. Um, they ordained me to the gospel ministry. Um, and Paul told Timothy, lay hands suddenly on no man. Um, don't immediately ordain someone to the ministry. Let him give an example uh, of his life and that he has, has been called into this ministry. And so our ecclesiology, making sure, in, in essence, that we have uh, the government of our church right. And then he says uh, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. That's eschatology. That's the study of end times, making sure we have that right. And how do we know that we have it right? Is it according to the scripture? If we don't get these right, we will be as the Hebrew Christians were, essentially infants, having to continually be fed milk and not strong meat. Now, some, for the sake of not probably not wanting to uh, um, address the whole of scripture or, or just have to be confronted with this, will will relegate... Um, uh, eschatology as a third-tier doctrine, saying, oh, it's not that important. It's not that big of a deal. We don't need to get that. You know, we don't all have to agree on that. And I would say that the Bible has spoken clearly on these things. God has mapped out what uh, what we can expect in the life of, of the church and even getting closer towards the end, what we can see, what we can expect Paul calls the ceremonial ordinances of the Mosaic law worldly elements. What exactly does he mean here? Well, if you have a Bible handy, uh, look at Galatians chapter 4. 
Galatians was written um, to address, basically to address legalism. Judaizers who had come into uh, this Galatian church and began to preach that one of the things that they taught was uh, you had to be circumcised uh, to be a Christian. Uh, you know, that now that you're professing Christ is okay, but uh, if you want to go further, you need to be circumcised and, and, and trying to follow that Mosaic law. And Paul likens it to, uh, to worldly elements. Look at what he says in verse 3 of chapter 4. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. What are those uh, these, what exactly does he mean by this? He, he's talking about it as a material and transitory, which it, it does, it's, means it's not permanent. The world presents a contrast with that which is spiritual and eternal. Paul's not considering the world to be evil, as indeed the law is not evil, but only of temporary value. And, and that's further seen um, in, in other passages of Scripture. As a matter of fact, you don't have to turn there. I will read this, though. It's a lengthy passage. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 9. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Now, the, the law we see could not do um, um, what, what, what some people were saying it could do. He goes on to say, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. So what happened, uh, uh, the, 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 the sacrifice of the animals did not purge the conscience of sin. That's why those, those sacrifices had to be continually offered. Uh, they were only offered a temporary appeasement for sin, if you will. He goes on to say in verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Matter of fact, um, what has been gained with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus coming as that perfect sacrifice is that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. They're cast as far as the, uh, the deepest part of the ocean, and they are to be remembered no more. And, and if you think about that, you say, well, the deepest part of the ocean doesn't sound very deep. Well, understand that the Mariana Trench over in the Pacific Ocean has not been explored to this point yet by man. No man has ever gone down there. So uh, he's giving good indication that these sins cannot be reached. These sins cannot uh, or should not be brought back to our remembrance. It says, he says in verse 4, For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. See, there's the temporary uh, nature of those those animal sacrifices. It would never offer full and complete redemption. And so Paul's saying that, that this, the, these Hebrews, as they were wanting to go back to Judaism, is saying, hey, that was only temporary. That was not, that law, um, that ceremonial law was seen as a worldly temporal element. Like it would make sense for the author to have the gospel in mind as it is the foundation of, upon which all other doctrine is built. You, you have to have, uh, first of all, you coming into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. If you are not born again, if it is merely a profession with your mouth, then it, it's, a, it's of no use, it's no good. But as for those who are born again, the gospel is the foundation for which every other doctrine is built upon. These Christians had not progressed 
in the faith to the point of giving an answer of the hope that was in them. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 last week, that to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer of the hope that is within you. That's what maturity in the Christian life does, is it prepares you to be able to give an answer of the hope that you profess to be within you. The sad reality, as I said a moment ago, is that many Christians have walked through the narrow gate and have stopped right there. They can tell you that something has happened to them. They can tell you there has been a change take place with them, but they don't know how to articulate that change. You see, I don't have the authority, and no other pastor, no other Christian has the authority to tell someone that they are a Christian. If God has worked that change of regeneration in your life, then you can tell someone, hey, something's happened to me. I hate the sin that I once loved. I love the things that I once, the things of God that I once hated before. I desire now to please God. I love him. I want to worship him. You see, that's the change that is affected in the life of one who hated God and God giving them that heart of, of flesh, taking that heart of stone, giving that heart of flesh, putting his spirit. That's a picture of regeneration. What 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 some of the old um the old uh, uh, theologians called regeneration, and what we would call regeneration today, is that it's someone who has been made alive. Paul used the word in, uh, the word in Ephesians two that you have he quickened, you have he made alive, meaning that you were previously dead in your trespasses and sin. These Christians had not sanctified the Lord God in their hearts. They could not give a basic explanation of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their life. If someone were to ask you to, I, I remember, let me say it this way, I remember growing up in the church that I, that I grew up in, and we would often, I seem like on a Sunday night is when this would happen, uh, the, the pastor would, would give a time for, um, for testimony of speaking of God's grace and goodness in your life and and it would it would it would always um it was always good to hear how people would uh would talk about their life before God saved them and in their life now can you articulate that and look we're not talking about that you use the language of some college seminary professor or some you know trained theologian or whatnot, but can you articulate the gospel as it has happened to you, as it has affected change in your life? The results of their lack of growth is seen furthermore in their inability to digest strong meat, and so they needed to continually be fed milk. Look what he says in verse uh, uh, verse twelve: For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. He's declaring they had reached a point where they ought to be teachers. You ought to, there ought to, and look, that's not, I've said this before, it's not that you're preparing a lesson and, and doing all these studies but that you've seen God's faithfulness teaching you as you learned about his word and as you've grown, that you're able to communicate those truths to others because it's become experiential in your life. I've, I've, I've 
heard people say, well, how do we know that the Bible's real? How do we know that it's true? Well, the Holy Spirit convicts us. We, we, he teaches us. We put these things to practice in our life, and we see God bless us because of that. That's how we know the Bible is, is real and true and what it claims to be. I think it's obvious he's saying that you've been Christians for a long time and you still need milk. You've been Christians for, you know, there, there's, who knows how long this had been, but these people still needed the milk. They still needed the, these vital nutrients for newborn babes. That's the rudimentary foundational principles of the Christian faith. They were still, in essence, having to be taught the ABCs and one, two, threes of the Christian life. Right, it, it would be it would be akin maybe to someone who had gone through twelve years of school and got to a point that they still couldn't read and they were still having to be taught the ABCs uh, and and the phonics and things of that nature and even in regards to math that they were having to be taught basic principles of math and couldn't move on to other more serious and deep subjects. The teaching that th this is the milk, this is the teaching that is necessary for infant Christians to grow thereby. That's what Peter said in, in, in 1 Peter, that newborn babes desire the sincere milk uh, of the word. But there comes a time when the need for the milk of the word must become a need for the strong meat of the word. That you're no longer content to be nourished by those elementary, fun, foundational, fundamental aspects of, of, of Christian belief, but there becomes a desire to eat stronger meat, right? There's, in the life of a child, you, you watch that child, right now we, we've got three grandbabies. We've got a four-month-old, a soon-to-be three-year-old, and a soon-to-be four-year-old. And, and that youngest one, though, she requires milk at this time to be fed and to be nourished. And it's good for her at this time. But there's going to come a point in time that, that that milk is no longer nourishing for her and she's going to require more solid food. That's the case with the Christian. That at the outset of salvation, at the outset of regeneration, that we require that sincere milk of the word, that nourishing thing, those foundational principles that help build us and nourish us and get us set on a pathway of, 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 of growth in Christ Jesus. But there comes a point in time when those foundational things are no longer good for our nourishment. Those foundational things move on to what the Bible calls stronger meat. The stronger meat signifies one who has become firm, strong, and immovable in the Christian faith. In other words, you have moved on to perfection by continued obedience as the Holy Spirit has taught you God's word. In other words, you're no longer ignorant of true doctrine. And that's what he's, he's talking about here in, in verse 13 when he says that you be, you're unskillful is that you're ignorant of true doctrine. Matter of fact, you're ignorant of the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Let me give you an example of, of true doctrine, of right doctrine. I've talked about it a little bit let me go into a little bit further detail. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, but not of yourselves. It, meaning faith, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This tells us, essentially, that salvation is by grace. What is grace? Grace is pardon for sin where, where none was deserved. Grace is the benevolence of God 
looking down and smiling upon unread, uh, 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 undeserving sinners. That God would condescend to man through Christ to redeem a people to himself. Those people who are at enmity with him, who are enemies of his, who are not friends of his. We are, the Bible called us in our pre-saved state, that we are children of disobedience, that we followed our father, the devil. But as God in his grace at a moment in time, granted to you and I faith to believe the gospel. That is, faith is the God-given ability to believe the gospel to the saving of your soul. Understand the faith that you say you have that, that caused you to, to believe in the gospel is not something that was inherent in yourself. It was not something that you conjured up within yourself. It was a gift given to you by God for the purpose of believing in him. You see, this faith is not a purposeless faith. It, it is a faith that finds its purpose in believing in Christ. Why does he do it this way? So that we would not boast. Boast means to talk about something that you did do. It means to, to, to take credit for something that you did do. And God's saying is that you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift from my benevolence so that you will not boast about it. Our testimony ought to start off with, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift of faith, that he would grant to an undeserving sinner the ability to believe the gospel. Now, if we're in our testimony taking credit for something that God has done, how dare we? How dare we presume upon that grace of God? Some of us, some of you are taking credit for something that God had done. You're the one saying, hey, look at me. Look what I've done. Look, and basically saying, I saved myself. And you wonder why you aren't moving on in the faith. You wonder why you're stuck in an infantile state. And that's because you're taking credit for what God has done. Maybe you need to confess and repent of the sin of taking credit for what God has done and watch him work. See, God, what Paul's saying in Ephesians is that we give all credit to God for his unmatchless, his unspeakable gift of grace. This ignorance of true doctrine leads to aberrant beliefs and unbiblical practice. He, what he's saying here is that uh, in verse 13, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. What is the word of righteousness? Well, it, it, it's the word of God. It's the word, uh, it's the, what is encapsulated in, in the 66 books uh, of the scripture. Second Peter 3, or 1 Peter uh, 3.16, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's the word of God. It's to our benefit. It's to, to help us know what to believe and how to live our life in light of that. And look, Peter addressed that in Second Peter, that the, the, the false teachers that were falsely teaching the scripture that were leading the people astray, excuse me, the, that were leading the people astray, that the evidence of their false teaching is seen in their immoral lifestyle. We see that. We seem like we're inundated with that. Just this week, 
a very prominent apologist um, who, who passed away last year, uh, was, was, it was found that he had multiple affairs and just some ungodly behavior. Look, we could spend an entire series of sermons on this, but is the faith you profess the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as, as Jude said? Now, let, let me give you a few practical things in, in closing here. We should guard against the critical, or against being critical, of the original recipients of this epistle. For we ourselves show the same characteristics. If we're going to be honest, we have to say that, man, you know what? I'm prone to the same laziness and obedience. I'm prone to this same slothfulness when it comes to obedience. Those who have heard the gospel proclaimed for numerous years. Look, I said last week, I believe it was, I've been in, I've been in church my whole life. 52 years almost, I have been in church. My parents drug us to church. There were times we didn't want to go as boys, but we got drugged to church anyway. Many of us since childhood, and I, I, I mean, I'm sure it's countless times in my life that I've heard the gospel. But having heard the gospel all those times did not always demonstrate spiritual discernment. Although we have God's revelation in the Old and New Testament, we remain slow learners. There are numerous surveys. As a matter of fact, they're conducted, seem like, every year, either by pastors or by Christian agencies, um, invariably reveal that church members do not know the basic principles of Scripture, don't know the basic fundamentals of the faith. And if they do, they're unable to apply these basic teachings. The ABCs of the Christian faith are readily mastered by any sincere believer who in turn should be capable of imparting this elementary knowledge to people unacquainted with the gospel. Talking about having a Christian witness. Do we know these things that we profess to the point that we could have a conversation with someone who knows nothing about Christ? The corporate responsibility of the church is to formulate the teachings of the Christian faith. And that is seen, I would say, if you know anything about church history, uh, it, it is seen in, in creeds and confessions that the church has put together. The, the, the Baptists have the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, there's been multiple uh, Baptist confessions that stem from that. Uh, I think one of the, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith um, at, at one time, we, we, were, we were really confessional people, and we organized these confessions, one, to teach, uh, to, to use a word that's not associated with Christianity, but to catechize our children and even adults. We've gotten away from that. These, the, the church's responsibility is to formulate the teachings of the Christian faith, the doctrines of God. Who is this God that we profess? Now, who is this God that we lay claim to know of the doctrines of man? Who are we in light of a holy God? The doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of the church and the end of the age belonging to the entire church and not merely to a few gifted theologians. You see, these, these things are not just for uh, theologians in ivory towers to discuss 
and to know they are for the practical everyday life of the church. This is how we communicate who God is and what he has done through Christ. The church as a body of believers is the responsible agent in formulating, adopting, teaching, and defending these doctrines of the faith. Therefore, you as an individual Christian, are, you're exhorted to progress beyond the level of elementary truths of God's word. Well, what a, a tragedy that it is in the church today that we've so dumbed down the gospel that even making it super simplistic, people still can't explain what the gospel is, still can't explain basic fundamentals of the faith. And so having to constantly be fed those things. What would the church look like? And look, I'm not talking about being a bunch of heady, high-minded, full-of-knowledge people. I'm talking about people who know the Bible and have watched it work in their life as they have obeyed and are teaching generations coming up behind them. That's what the church ought to be doing. But now we've relinquished that responsibility to organizations like Lifeway and, and, and other organizations that put together Sunday school material. What would it look like if we were devoted to knowing this God that we profess to know more intimately than we already know him? And that we were concerned with living out this faith that we profess. Uh, my desire to, is to see Valley View Baptist Church be just that. That we are a church that, that is consumed with obeying God. And the more that we obey God, the more that he teaches us his word. And, and one way to do that, we gotta know, we've got to know what's in this book so that we can know how to obey that. And so on a personal level, that we give ourselves to study the Word of God. And I would, I would say this, that in Acts 17, 11, Paul was confronted by the Berean Christians and that they received the Word of God. That is, they gave it an open hearing, and then they went home and studied those things to see if they were true. And, and that's where we as the church need to be, that we hear the Word and we go home and study so that we would know how to live our life uh, to, to please God. I, I hope you were blessed by this message today. I look forward to seeing y'all uh, in person next Sunday, barring any uh, catastrophic weather, uh, barring any, uh, any, any, any sickness. Um, I, I would encourage you to remember uh, those that we've got on our prayer list at church to pray for. And, and also there's a, a, uh, a, a uh, preacher that was at the conference that I went to uh, back in uh, the end of January in Florida, um, his name is Vody Balcom, um, that he is on his way back to the United States right now um, for some from fur some further testing and, and find out what his treatments are. He, he's suffering heart failure. He's my age. He's a young fella. Um, he's my age. So uh, be in prayer for him and his family. He and his wife have nine kids. And, and uh, just be in prayer for them that, that God would continue to work. God has done a magnificent thing already in, in raising a lot of money that, that's going to help them with their expenses, uh, medically speaking, because they don't have insurance. Um, so if you would remember him uh, when you pray. Uh, let, let's pray, and, and uh, again, thank you all for tuning in. Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I, I pray that uh, as in particular as Valley View Baptist Church, that we would be a people uh, so concerned with obeying you that we give our life to know what we must do through your word. 
We give our life to know what we must do through the preaching of your word. And, and Father, even going beyond those who do not attend Valley View Baptist Church, God, that when they hear this message, that they would be pricked in their heart to follow you in, in more committed obedience. God, would you be glorified in our life? Would you be, um, uh, Lord, uh, made much of in our conversation and as we witness uh, of your grace in our life? We praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.